0: Hello, and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded and produced directly from My Mom's Basement. Today's episode is part two of Work for Hire. So if you haven't listened to the first part, go ahead and go back to last month's episode before listening to this one. Anyway, without further ado, let's dive into the conclusion of Work for Hire. Thank you. The driver shifted in his seat. His body language telegraphed some kind of uncomfortability. Mr. Dagger noticed this and frowned. The 29-year-old simply stared back at Mr. Dagger, waiting for a punchline or a chuckle or some kind of indication that what he had said was in fact a joke or attempting to be one. But no such indication came. There was a long silence. Are you joking? The 29-year-old asked. No. There is nothing humorous about this. This man is a nuisance to me. He must be stopped. What? Well, I... I'll give you your car ride back to your... intersection to think about it, Mr. Dagger said, reapplying his handkerchief to his nose. Mr. Dagger tapped the stiff driver on the shoulder and the car began to move again, backing away from the grand estate and returning to the long, dark, pine-covered lane. The 29-year-old stared out of the car window, thinking of the cold and dark world he was going to have to return to. He wasn't exactly frightened by what Mr. Dagger had said. It took a lot to frighten the 29-year-old, but he was, to put it mildly, very confused. As the neighborhood slowly drifted from upper class to middle class to working class, the 29-year-old could feel his body tensing He could feel his muscles tightening, readying to face whatever danger might present itself on the deserted, frost-covered streets of the industrial district which he called home. He could already feel the rough concrete against his face. He could already feel the snow blowing in under his torn clothes. He could already feel the throbbing cramps of starvation coursing through his abdomen. He could already see the malicious characters waiting for him in the shadows, ready to take from him whatever they deemed valuable. He tried not to cry. As the Rolls rounded the last corner and started speeding down the run-down street the 29-year-old called home, the 29-year-old came to a sudden, epiphanic conclusion. He was far more terrified of the street, of the world to which he belonged, than he was of this mysterious benefactor and the murderous schemes of high society. Three nights later, the 29-year-old found himself standing at the front gate to the Rosewood House. He got there on foot, a five-hour walk. Mr. Dagger discouraged the 29-year-old from taking any kind of public transportation or soliciting a cab. There could be no record of his trip to the Rosewood house. After pacing the perimeter of the estate, a journey in itself which took close to an hour, the 29-year-old realized that the fence held no weakness or deficiencies. It was a solid, well-crafted fence that any metal worker would be proud of tall and stable, and without any signs of rust or decay, there would be no penetrating this fence, only circumventing it, climbing over or under or around it. But, as Mr. Dagger had told the 29-year-old, this would be his greatest obstacle. If he could just get past the fence, the rest would be easy. The 29-year-old had been outfitted by Mr. Dagger through an organized, clandestine care package drop, which consisted of an unregistered firearm, a black winter coat, and black combat boots. These items had been wrapped in cellophane and inconspicuously placed under newspaper clippings in the back of a specified dumpster on a street the 29-year-old frequented. The firearm given to the 29-year-old was a snub-nosed thirty eight caliber revolver with six cartridges already loaded in the cylinder. But, having never fired a gun before... The 29-year-old was hoping he could find another way of taking care of the owner of the Rosewood house. He was banking on being able to sneak into the mansion undetected and smothering or strangling the designated target in his sleep without having to resort to any kind of firearm use. He thought that smothering might be a more humane way of murder, anyway. At least suffocation wouldn't involve any scary percussive blasts and bodily mutilation by way of fast-moving projectiles. The 29-year-old had, like many people, an adverse reaction to seeing blood, and if TV and movies had taught the 29-year-old anything, it was that bullets, especially when used in close quarters, had a way of making a Bellagio fountain show out of blood and other bodily materials. He didn't want to see that. He also figured that the owner of the Rosewood house was old and decrepit after a long life of sitting in boardrooms and plush leather chairs, and that he would have no problem overpowering an old man with such a soft and atrophied body. Yes, suffocation would be the way to go. Standing in the dark, pacing along the edge of the fence line like a caged lion, the 29-year-old wiggled his toes in his warm boots and raised his cozy ears against the thick lining of his jacket's hood. For the first time in years, the 29-year-old was adequately dressed for his conditions. He was warm enough to not shiver uncontrollably. He was warm enough to think about something other than his lack of warmth. This new agency in his cognition raised a few new problems. Standing in front of the dark mansion, the 29-year-old began to realize that killing the wealthy oligarch that lived in the dark chambers of the Rosewood House wasn't really essential to his survival. Now that a couple of his basic needs had been met, the 29-year-old was suddenly struck with the true ethical and moral repercussions of his mission. He put his hands around the cold metal bars of the fence and stared. He stared at the brick mansion in the moonlight. All of the windows were dark. There were no lights on. If he wanted to, he could run. He could turn around and run back to the city and hide out somewhere. He didn't have to kill this man. He didn't have to do anything. And although Mr. Dagger had made a vague but serious threat on the 29-year-old's life when he first agreed to carry out his murderous request, the 29-year-old knew there was no real way Mr. Dagger could find him. Unless there was some kind of GPS tracker hidden in the down padding of his winter jacket, the 29-year-old could easily escape the malicious clutches of Mr. Dagger. He'd been hiding for years now. He was good at it. He was an expert and he knew that Mr. Dagger didn't have the time or the investment to really search that long or hard for him. The 29-year-old watched his breath float up in little clouds, fading away in the moonlight. He thought about turning around. He would be a pair of boots and a winter jacket richer, and he wouldn't have to kill anyone. He could probably sell the gun to someone on the street, too. He could probably make a few hundred bucks. That would be enough money to feed him for months. For months. But those months would run out. And then what? He would be hungry again, and his new jacket and boots would only make him a target. People, aggressive and strong people who have violence in their eyes, would fight the 29-year-old for his new clothes. They would wrestle him to the ground and strip the warm hooded jacket from his skinny body. They would peel the waterproof boots from his bony feet. They would beat him and harm him and make him cry and scream and plead for their mercy he would be left on the street somewhere with broken bones and a bloodied face and a half-naked body. Within weeks of being back on the street, he would come to resemble that shivering and emaciated victim of society who was only saved from death by the intervention of Mr. Dagger. The 29-year-old couldn't go back to the streets. He wouldn't go back to the streets. If he had to kill an old rich dude who had already lived a long life of privilege and excess, then so be it. Either way, someone was going to die either the 29-year-old from starvation and exposure or the owner of the Rosewood house by way of murder, and it was up to the 29-year-old to choose who it would be. The 29-year-old stepped away from the fence and looked over the mansion. He thought of its history and its personality. He thought of all the wonders that had been held within its walls. He thought of all the things that had been held without its walls, mostly people like himself. He made his choice. The 29-year-old made another round of the premises, stomping through dead leaves and pine needles, looking for any possible place of entry. He was again thwarted by the most simplistic of all safety measures, the fence. He couldn't find a way over. And while athletic enough and agile enough, there's no way he could climb it or jump to its pinnacle. The fence was 10 feet tall, the size of an NBA regulation basketball hoop, and the 29-year-old could only grab at the bottom of the net. He made a serious commotion trying to clear the fence once or twice, banging and clanging against the old metal bars. The sound of his feet hitting the metal echoed out into the night like sad church bells, and he could hear animals being roused in the distant forest. But the 29-year-old wasn't worried about alerting anyone, or anything. Any fear of death or incarceration no longer existed in his mind or soul. He had only one thought, and that was to kill. Once he fulfilled his mission, he would be saved all of his problems would be taken care of. Mr. Dagger would protect him. Mr. Dagger had made him a promise, and for some foolish reason, the 29-year-old trusted him. As he walked around the back of the estate, he saw the backyard fence butted up against a thick tree line. There was a robust row of pines that stood, at some points, no more than 10 feet away from the fence. As the 29-year-old inspected this obviously man-made row of pine trees, He spied a pine with a thick trunk and long sturdy limbs, some of which stretched out towards the rosewood house fence. One branch in particular almost tickled the top of the fence, gently waving over top of it in the night wind. It was perfect. The 29-year-old put his cold hands against the wrinkled bark of the pine tree in question, and then reached up to the branch nearest the ground. He needed only to stand on his tippy toes to reach it. Once he had a hold of this branch, he pulled himself up onto it, straddling the thick branch between his legs. Once he was sure of his placement on this branch, he repeated the process until he was sitting on the branch that would deliver him to the other side of the fence. He would have to be careful negotiating the branch. It stretched out far and grew thin at its end. If he wasn't careful, he would slip, or worse, the branch could snap without his expecting it. His plan was fairly straightforward. He would scoot to the end of the branch and then, like a high diver, springboard off the branch and sail over the rosewood house fence. The fall would hurt. The 29-year-old knew that. Coming from above the fence, he would have no real way to brace his 12-foot fall. But once he was over the fence, everything else would be money in the bank, smooth sailing. When the 29-year-old arrived at the designated branch, he scooted himself to the very edge and held himself there for a moment. He could feel the arm of the tree bending slightly from his weight. Then, slowly, one by one, he brought his feet on top of the branch like it was some kind of precarious skateboard. And then, without hesitation, the 29-year-old jumped. His flight path was smooth and fast, meaning he fell like an anvil to the ground. He landed hands first, but his arms buckled from the force of his impact and his head slammed against the cold ground. The wind was knocked out of him, and his thirty-eight revolver slipped out of his waistband and skidded across the manicured lawn with a metallic scraping noise. The 29-year-old laid on the ground, unmoving, for about 30 seconds. He gasped for air quietly and took a quick inventory of his body, making sure he hadn't sustained any serious injuries. His head throbbed, and his hands were numb, and he could hardly catch his breath, but he was okay. He made it over okay. No bones were broken, at least. Once he could breathe again, the 29-year-old stood up and collected his pistol, wiping some dirt from along its short barrel. Now, the only thing that lay between him and the mansion was the preposterously large lawn which was twinkling with a shiny film of frost. It looked like a lake of silver. His boots made soft crunching sounds as he walked over the frozen grass. Shallow imprints were made after each step in the icy lawn, showing, in perfect detail, the 29-year-old's path from the fence towards the mansion. As the 29-year-old drew near to the house, he realized that he didn't have the slightest clue as to where the owner of the mansion would be sleeping. Trying to find his target would be like looking for a single person in an empty hotel or office building. And once a window was broken or a lock picked, once he was inside the Rosewood house, every second would be precious. He wouldn't have time to run aimlessly around a 62,000 square foot mansion looking for an old man to murder. He needed to be quick and clean. But as he approached the stone steps that led from the lawn to the sprawling back porch of the house, the 29-year-old was beginning to realize that this enterprise would be anything but quick and clean. As he climbed the stone steps towards the house, the 29-year-old pulled the pistol from his waistband and held it up close to his chest with both hands, something he'd seen cops do in old crime dramas. His hands were shaking. The gun wiggled and made quiet creaking noises in his wet palms. The 29-year-old thought he could hear the cartridges bouncing around in their little tubes, shivering with excitement, just waiting to be unleashed, just waiting to serve their purpose, just waiting to crash into skin and bone and vital organs, just waiting to kill. These bullets were hollow-pointed. Their mouths were open wide, ready to gobble up any organic tissue that stood in the way of their subsonic trajectory. The 29-year-old stopped on the patio. It was an enormous porch about the size of a tennis court. He stood still and looked up at the mansion that now loomed over him. He was standing at its very base now, and the dark windows and ornate architecture hung over him like an imposing turn-of-the-century tidal wave, ready to swallow him up with all of its lavishness and unparalleled magnitude. The actual scale of the mansion was now dawning on the 29-year-old. The house, which had always been impressive to the 29-year-old, had existed in a kind of fantasy world to him. Without context or perspective, the house held a kind of amusement park quality, a kind of fakeness, as though it were some kind of large model or set piece for a movie. But now, standing right up against its intricate facade, Gregory could see that this manor was not a two-dimensional optical illusion, but that it was even more detailed and ornate and impressive than he could have imagined. Rows of windows spread out in all directions, each pane being considerably taller than the 29-year-old himself, and decorated by a small frieze that was hewn out of stone marble. Each frieze seemed to depict a scene from antiquity, things like Hercules and Theseus, etc. The back entrance of the house, or should I say, one of the back entrances, the one closest to the 29-year-old, was a pair of French doors that stood at least 12 feet in height and 5 feet in width. Their combined width being 10 feet wide, these doors, when left open, made a large breezeway that could be left open wide during the summer months, creating a kind of open-air atmosphere. The immense size of these doors was also a necessary design, for they needed to be large enough to facilitate the transfer of banquet tables, outdoor sporting equipment, and any large antiques or artworks that may have been purchased abroad and brought back to the house. The original owner of the home was known to sometimes ride his horse directly from the lawn and through those massive doors, much to the chagrin of his housekeeping staff, who would be left to clean the mud and dirt and horse feces that was left around the house. The 29-year-old stood in front of these solid oak doors, his hands shaking from fear and cold, and thought of the people and things that had passed through them. He thought of their history, their nearly 200-year lifespans, and then he tried to see if they were unlocked. The polished brass doorknob didn't budge, it didn't even turn or creak, didn't even feign weakness or pregnability. The 29-year-old wasn't stupid, He knew that the doors would be locked, but he also knew that even the elite are not exempt from absent-mindedness, and he'd feel really dumb if he shattered a window when a back door had been left unlocked. But, after trying both knobs, which were each about the size of a newborn skull, the 29-year-old understood that he would have to enter the mansion through brute and violent force. He put his weight against the oak doors and probed their solidity. They were beefy suckers. The 29-year-old could try all he might, but he would bounce off those doors like a tic-tac against a boulder. If he wanted to break those doors down, he would need something to match their medieval nature, i.e. a catapult, or a battering ram, or a cannon that could fire a 30-pound projectile. The 29-year-old stood back from the doors and sighed. He was going to have to break in a different way, and that way, he decided, would be through one of the dozens of windows that dotted the marble exterior of the house. The question then was not could he break one of the windows, for he could tell the glass of the window panes were brittle and old and about as thick as the glass of a champagne flute. Now the important question was, which window should he break? Having no clear idea as to where the owner of the house was sleeping, or even where the living quarters of the house were located, he could end up stepping right into the old man's bedroom or into the very opposite side of the house. It was a crapshoot. It was a conundrum. One, the 29-year-old decided he didn't have time to solve. Sure, he could sit on the patio and use deducement and logic and trigonometry and knowledge of architectural patterns to zero in on the location of the master bedroom, but the 29-year-old was freezing and terrified and wanted to get this horror show on the road, so he decided to do the very next best thing, break through the window closest to him. Directly flanking the awesome oaken doors were two low-lying windows that stood no more than two feet from the ground. These windows were long and skinny, roughly the width and height of a man, the panes of which were not entirely transparent, but tinctured in a milky brown color, a phenomenon the 29-year-old could only guess was a result of old age. This only encouraged the 29-year-old. He thought any window antiquated enough to be hewed by time would have to be easy to shatter. It would have to be, right? Flipping his pistol around, the 29-year-old held his gun by the cold metal barrel with the wooden handle curving out from his clenched fist. This would be his glass-breaking device. Rudimentary, sure, but able to get the job done. Stepping to the window that flanked the right side of the grand oak doors, the 29-year-old ran the backside of his free hand along the old glass. It felt thin. It felt weak. He could practically hear it begging to be shattered. Fixing himself in a kind of athletic stance, his legs bent and shoulder-width apart, the 29-year-old began a series of practice swings like a golfer at the tee. Holding the gun with both hands, he slowly brought it up behind his head and then slowly back down towards the glass, gently tapping the intended point of impact with the butt of his pistol. He repeated this action more times than necessary. His heart started to pound. This was it. This was the point of no return. Once the glass was shattered, any number of outcomes were possible, most of which ended with the 29-year-old either getting killed or apprehended. The improbable outcome, in which the 29-year-old successfully completed his objective and escaped without notice or harm, was one amongst thousands of other less-than-desirable ones. For all the 29-year-old knew, the entire local police force was already on its way, a SWAT team readying to tackle and restrain him in plastic zip ties. He started to breathe faster. Cold sweat made his grip on the pistol slippery and unsure. He felt a nervous shiver creep up his back, and he kept on practice swinging, over and over and over again. Tears welled in his eyes as the gravity of his task began to weigh on him. How did he end up here? What was he doing here? He brought the pistol above his head one more time and paused. He waited there for some kind of intervention, whether from God or himself, he didn't know. He waited to see if something would alter his course, take him off his path. The cold winter wind blew, his jacket rippled, his ratty beard waved, and some dead leaves scraped along the patio floor. He let go a deep breath, let go of care, let go of worry, let go of everything, and brought the pistol down hard against the window. There was a quick crack, but no shatter. Long, jagged lines branched out in the glass like the thick arteries of an icy vascular system. There was a white circular dimple in the glass where the 29-year-old whacked it, but no breakthrough had been made. The glass still held its shape. The 29-year-old looked around. Had anyone heard that? Was anyone coming for him? The night was still silent, but for the wind. The 29-year-old repositioned himself and tried to break the glass again. There was a louder crack this time, a rich, percussive sound that held serious consequences. More pieces of the window splintered and fractured, and then, one large, iceberg-looking piece near the bottom of the window, something about the size of a microwave, came free from its bond with the rest of the glass and fell inwards towards the ancient hardwood flooring of the mansion. The 29-year-old watched in horror as the serving-plate-sized sheet of glass belly-flopped against the hardwood. There was a sharp smacking sound, and then the glittering whisper of hundreds of glass shards spreading themselves across the hardwood. The rest of the window remained in the form of long, jagged spikes that wrapped around the newly-made hole like the teeth of a carnivore. This window was not modern. It was not tempered. The 29-year-old was expecting, was hoping, for the entire window to come showering down in an avalanche of atomized glass particles. This was a common function of most modern windows to save people from severe lacerations. But alas, this window was made before the Gettysburg Address was delivered, so any kind of tempering was out of the question. Using the butt of his pistol, the 29-year-old knocked away some of the remaining glass, creating a hole large enough for him to crouch through. He was now inside the mansion, his boots crunching over glass. The house was dark, nearly pitch black, and it smelled like your grandmother's basement, a kind of rich, mildewy smell that is not entirely unpleasant, but, at the very least, very distinctive. The twenty-nine-year-old thought there must have been some pockets of air in the mansion that had been trapped there for a hundred and sixty years. It made him crinkle his nose and stifle a cough. The first thing the 29-year-old did was flip his gun around to its proper attack position, barrel facing outwards with his finger on the trigger. Looking around, he saw that he had bashed his way into what looked like a kind of grand ballroom, something straight out of the Titanic. In the kind of spectral moonlight, the 29-year-old had a hard time making out shapes and colors, but he could still gather the sheer size of the room he was in. At one end of the room, there was a grand staircase that split off into two separate, smaller staircases at its top, and then, at its bottom, the two converged into one thoroughfare so large you could drive two minivans abreast up its red carpet. inset in one of the walls was a stone fireplace so big it could have used a Californian redwood tree as firewood, and in the center of this room laid an oriental rug, roughly the square footage of an average American household's floor plan. The 29-year-old brushed off any glass or dirt that clung to his jacket and stood silently, listening, thinking. Under any other circumstance, the 29-year-old might have enjoyed a visit to see an American castle, to see how someone might utilize their private fortune, to see the kind of ridiculous but beautiful excesses America is known for. But under this circumstance, clutching a gun in his shaky hands and wandering around inside the dark and cavernous corridors of the mansion, ready to perform the most unforgivable of unforgivable acts, the twenty-nine-year-old was anything but excited. After listening to the sighing and creaking of the old mansion as it slept in the cold night, the twenty-nine-year-old decided no one had been alerted by his break-in. And so, confident that his presence was unknown, He headed deeper into the house. Crossing the beautiful, oriental rug, over which he tracked mud and grass and displaced some shards of glass, the 29-year-old came to the grand staircase. Thinking that the owner of the house probably had his rooms on the upper floors of the mansion, the 29-year-old ascended the stairs, keeping his 38 out at the ready. The stairs moaned and sighed and yelped as he stepped over their old and weary faces. He could feel the wooden stairs bend and rock under his boots. There was even a warped depression in the center of the stairs from the weight of the countless people who had traversed over them during their long lifespan. The 29-year-old could feel the memory of these people. He could feel their high heels and their shiny loafers and their gowns and dresses and three-piece suits. When the staircase diverged, the 29-year-old decided to charge up the leftward side. He did this without hesitation or cogitation, something in him always favored the left. It was a superstitious habit, something he had picked up in grade school and never outgrew. But like any man caught in what could be a life-or-death scenario, the 29-year-old was relying heavily on superstition and luck to see him through his perilous endeavor. Unfortunately, for the 29-year-old, he chose wrong. Perhaps if he had left superstition behind, he would have survived the night. The top of the staircase spit the 29-year-old out into a long and narrow corridor, and it was pitch black. The only word that could possibly describe the darkness of this corridor would be subterranean, or maybe deep sea-esque. The 29-year-old couldn't even see the end of his pistol as he held it out in front of him. It was a thick, soupy kind of darkness. The 29-year-old thought he could feel the blackness filling his lungs like water. Before moving forward, the 29-year-old reached out with his arms in all directions and felt stone walls about an arm length away from him on either side. He knew then that he must be in some kind of hallway, a passageway that could lead him into somewhere a little less dark, hopefully. He would have to use the walls to guide him. Holding his gun with his right hand and pressing his left palm against the cold stone wall, he began to walk down the pitch-black corridor. His nose was filled with the earthy, mineral smell of stone, and the twenty-nine-year-old's olfactory system sent him back to when he was a child, playing around in the cellar at his grandparents' house. The cellar was all concrete. It was cold and dark and filled with shelving that housed dusty jars and tools. The 29-year-old would hide in that cellar, hide, and think of his parents. But that was an old memory now, one distorted and fogged by time. His grandparents wouldn't keep him long, and he'd be shipped off somewhere else. And the memory of that cold and dark place would fade, only to reemerge when least expected. The 29-year-old's boots clapped against the stone floor. After a time, he picked his feet up on their tippy-toes and moved forward not unlike Elmer Fudd in a Looney Tunes episode, holding his gun out and walking with an exaggerated emphasis placed on his stealth, his head bouncing up and down as he moved from foot to foot. As the 29-year-old snuck further into this corridor, his eyes, by small degrees, began to acclimate to the murky blackness. The general geometry of the corridor started to present itself. He could see that the hall was tall and arched in a kind of gothic style, sloping into a curved point at its apex. There were various wooden end tables standing along the walls, which were decorated with antiques and ornaments from faraway lands. The 29-year-old was amazed he hadn't knocked anything over in the dark. He also began to see the dark outlines of doors perforating the stone walls further down the corridor. This looked promising. These doors could lead to bedrooms. And these bedrooms could lead to the man he was instructed to kill. He moved down the hall towards these doors, slowing his pace to a crawl, moving as if in slow motion. If these doors really did lead to his target, he couldn't risk arousing anyone, he couldn't risk making any kind of sound. By the time he reached the first of the many doors, his eyes were almost completely adjusted to the dark. He could see with the feline precision of a nighttime predator stalking its prey. And, indeed, that's exactly what he was. A predator. A killer. A stalker. His hand lost its place on the stone wall and bumped up against the wooden door jamb of a wide, dark wood door. In the flat, grayish light of the 29-year-old's acclimated vision, there was little detail. But he could still see the slight glint of a doorknob sitting at waist height and protruding from the dark mass of the door. In a quick but measured action, The 29-year-old twisted the knob and found, unlike the brassy knobs out back, that this doorknob gave way and released itself from the door jamb. Pushing slowly, the 29-year-old opened the door to whatever was on the other side. The door made a soft creak and moan, but nothing the 29-year-old thought loud enough to alert anyone nearby. It was a sad, quiet noise, like the last bit of air leaving a dying man's lungs. When the 29-year-old saw the door was open wide enough for him to squeeze inside, he dropped his hands to his sides and wiggled through the gap. The 29-year-old saw a window, and then the lights came on. The light was blinding, and the 29-year-old winced and closed his eyes. A voice, old and rugged, came from behind him. Drop your gun. The 29-year-old did just that. He threw his hands in the air and his thirty-eight clunked against the floor with a heavy thud. "'Turn around,' the voice said. After acclimating to such a dark environment, the 29-year-old's eyes burned under the harsh light. Trying to open them made his head throb. It was like he had just been hit with a flashbang grenade. He stumbled as he turned around. His eyes were still closed, and he kept his hands above his head. He could feel the presence of someone in the doorway. He could feel the eyes of someone digging into him. The 29-year-old opened his eyes. The room he had entered appeared to be some kind of kitchenette or butler's pantry. It was a smallish room with a marble counter in its center and cupboards hanging on the walls surrounding the counter. There were all kinds of kitchen accoutrements spread out on the counter, a cutting board, a collection of kitchen knives, pots, pans, etc. But the room itself was no larger than your average bedroom. Standing in the doorway to this little butler's pantry was, the 29-year-old saw, an old man holding possibly the largest gun he had ever seen in his life. It made the man, who was tall and broad-shouldered, look small by comparison. It was some kind of double-barreled contraption decorated with gold leaf and what looked like an ivory butt with scrimshaw carvings covering most of it. It looked like an antique, something you'd see in a museum. Kick your gun! over to me, the old man said, his double-barreled bazooka trained on the 29-year-old. The 29-year-old looked around, his vision blurred and disoriented, and tried to find where the pistol had fallen. He couldn't see it anywhere. I I, I, I don't know where it is, the 29-year-old said. Behind you, the old man said. Look on the ground behind you. The 29-year-old flipped around, his hands still in the air, "'and saw his little thirty-eight sitting on the hardwood paneling. "'He could die for it. "'He could pounce and grab it. "'The old man couldn't have a very fast reaction time. "'His muscles would be stiff and his mind cloudy. "'The 29-year-old could outmaneuver him. "'He could dive for the pistol and roll behind the counter. "'He'd have six shots while it looked like the old man would only have two. "'He could do it. "'He'd have to be quick. "'He couldn't make a mistake.' He couldn't stumble, but once he was positioned behind the counter, it would be an even gunfight. The 29-year-old looked down at the little pistol and realized he couldn't feel his hands or feet. They were completely numb. His teeth were chattering. He could feel vomit inching its way up his throat. Kick it over, the old man said. The 29-year-old hooked the toe of his boot under the pistol and launched it across the floor towards the old, gun-wielding man. He just didn't have it in him to fight. He didn't have it in him to dive for the gun. I guess you never know until you're in that kind of situation. But the 29-year-old was not a fighter. The 29-year-old watched as his last and only hope of completing his mission skidded and thumped over the hardwood and stopped at the old man's feet. In a painful and rigid motion, the old man squatted down to the pistol, grabbed it with one hand, and threw it into the dark hallway behind him. It made an echoey bang against the stone. The old man's face contorted as his old leg muscles raised him back to his standing position. This man must have been ten years Mr. Dagger's senior, at least. His face was covered with bluish clusters of broken blood vessels and dotted with purple age spots, which gave his perfectly bald head the appearance of an alien moon. The whites of his eyes had the yellowish hue of honey or urine, and his jowls hung low over his chin like those of an English bulldog. In fact, a bulldog would serve as a great analog for this old man. He was like a big, anthropomorphized bulldog. His shoulders were strong and his neck short and wide, and his lower jaw jutted out in an ugly underbite. Even in old age, this old guy looked formidable and tough and ready to kill. This old man was a fighter. You could tell he'd been fighting his entire life. Stay right there, the old man said. The police are on their way. No, please, the 29-year-old said, struggling to even speak. I, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, uh, to, the 29-year-old trailed off. He didn't know what to say. His hands quivered in the air. Where'd you come from? Where'd you come from? The old man asked. There was no fear in this man's voice. His question was calm and sincere. I, uh, I, I don't know, the 29-year-old responded. P- please don't, uh, don't call the police. I, I'm sorry, I can, uh, I can, I can leave. The 29-year-old's voice was caught in his throat again. It felt like his vocal cords had been surgically removed. When he tried to speak, nothing came out. Did someone send you here? The old man asked. The 29-year-old shivered. He wasn't sure if he should defend Mr. Dagger or throw him under the bus. He was the reason the 29-year-old was in this awful predicament, after all. Uh, 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 no, the 29-year-old said. No, no one, no one sent me. So you stumbled into my home at random, the old man asked. It was pure chance, was it? You decided to walk two miles off the nearest paved road to come here. Why? The 29-year-old shrugged his shoulders. The old man took a step into the room, closing the distance between himself and the 29-year-old. Someone sent you here, didn't they? The old man asked. The 29-year-old shook his head, slowly mouthing the word, no. On the counter in front of the 29-year-old was a butcher's knife. The handle pointed out towards the 29-year-old. On the knife's edge was the filmy residue of some kind of dessert that must have been cut days ago. This old man didn't have a working staff of servants. In fact, as the room came into focus and the 29-year-old's eyes adjusted completely, the abject disarray of the butler's pantry became wholly visible. Half-eaten plates of potatoes and meat were scattered here and there. Silverware was tossed haphazardly around. Soiled napkins and paper towels were crumpled in piles, and crumbs littered the floor. It looked like raccoons had scampered in there and had torn the place to shreds. The old man could see the 29-year-old looking at the stale plates of food and soggy napkins scattered around. I had to let go of my kitchen staff, I'm afraid, the old man said. I've
1: never been one who took great care of himself, even in my old age.
0: The 29-year-old stared into the old man's gun, stared into its double-barreled eyes. Death was waiting for him in those eyes somewhere. All the old man had to do was contract his arthritic pointer finger, and the 29-year-old would be gone in a flash of gunpowder and lead. I suppose we might have that in common, huh? The old man asked. We never learned how to take care of ourselves properly. The 29-year-old didn't say anything. He just shrugged. The old man moved closer to the 29-year-old. The end of his rifle was now just out of arm's reach. Tell me who sent you
1: here. I would like to know. The police will get it out of you anyway. Why don't you tell me now?
0: No, no, no no one sent me, the 29-year-old said. His voice was shaky and unsupported. You were offered some money, weren't you?
1: Uh, sure. I would have done the same thing. Trust me. I've done worse things for a paycheck. Oh, sure. You can't support a lifestyle like this without losing some part of your humanity. To be successful at anything, to any degree, you have to sacrifice something of yourself. You have to make mighty sacrifices. Sometimes you sacrifice time. You sacrifice leisure. You sacrifice love. In business. In big business. You have to learn to sacrifice your humanity.
0: The old man took a step closer to the 29-year-old. The deadly eyes of the golden shotgun were now less than an arm's length away. The 29-year-old could reach out and grab the gun. He could snag the end of it and pull it from the old man's grasp. He could wrench it from the old geezer's fingers with little effort. He wouldn't even have to use his full strength. It would be easy. Then it would be over. Of course, the old man said. Living without humanity can breed you
1: many enemies.
0: But look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've gained. The old man rolled his eyes across the room as if to gesture to his house. This house goes beyond humanity, doesn't it? The 29-year-old wasn't listening. His ears were thundering with the sound of his own heartbeat, and his eyes were focused on the end of the shotgun. He was devising a plan in his head. First, he would dive down and to his right, moving out of the path of the shotgun. Then, with his left hand, he would reach up and grab the barrel of the gun and rip it from the old man's arms. And then, as quickly as he possibly could, he would turn the gun around and end the old man's life. Look at us, the old man said, on different ends of the
1: spectrum of wealth. But I can tell you that I wasn't always here. And if I were to guess... You weren't always where you are, but I see your eyes. I see what you're willing to do. I see what you're capable of. We're one in the same. We're both ready to lose our humanity. We're both ready to kill.
0: The old man took one last step closer to the 29-year-old. This was the moment. The old man was so close that he was simply asking to be attacked. It was a glaring failure of spatial awareness on the part of the old man. In a flash, the 29-year-old dove to the ground just as he planned, down and to the right. He executed this evasive tactic expertly, landing low on the floor and leaving the old man reeling. Then, without looking, the 29-year-old reached up and grabbed the double-barreled shotgun. But, in his haste, the 29-year-old didn't see that his left hand had landed on the exact end of the gun his palm covering the dark eyes of the shotgun. And as the 29-year-old pulled the gun down towards him, a shot rang out. His hearing immediately disappeared and was replaced with a high-pitched ringing. He felt warm fluid splash up against his cheeks and soak his jacket, and his left hand felt completely numb. With his eyes closed and his body falling into shock, the 29-year-old continued to pull down on the gun, but as he opened his eyes... He saw the old man standing over him, a smile on his face, and his gun moving freely in his hands. The twenty-nine-year-old looked to see why his left hand was no longer performing properly. It was gone. His entire left hand was missing, nothing was there. His ulna and radius bones were protruding from the meat of his forearm like broken and frayed twigs, their white and bloody ends shattered and chipped as though they were what remained of tree limbs that had been torn from their trunk. Blood spurted out of his open forearm with each one of his shallow heartbeats. He watched the blood drizzle onto the old man's pants. There was no pain, however, only adrenaline and shock. The 29-year-old looked on the floor for his missing hand, but it was nowhere to be seen. There was only blood and small fragments of flesh. Some of these organic fragments had glued themselves onto the walls and cupboards. The gunshot had not just taken his hand off. It had obliterated it.
1: I was waiting for you to do that, the old man said. I was waiting for you to get cocky. This gun took down an elephant in East Africa. You believe that? They don't even make the ammunition for this thing anymore. It's not cost effective. The rounds are too big.
0: The old man's voice sounded haunting and distant in the 29-year-old's ringing ears and shock-addled mind. He was falling into unconsciousness. The last thing the 29 year old saw was the old man standing over him, the eyes of the shotgun looking directly into his face. Goodbye, the old man said. The second shot was heard by the police as they swarmed the property. One junior officer saw the light from the blast fill the frame of a second story window. Within moments, half a dozen highly trained, highly armored, and highly equipped officers were at the entrance to the butler's pantry, and they, all of them, let out a great sigh of relief when they saw that everything was okay. The owner was safe and protected, and the criminal, the lowlife, the homeless burglar, was dead. Everything was exactly as it should be. There was balance in the universe. Officers listened as the old man told his harrowing tale, pride filling their chests. Here was a man who could and should be admired. He was elderly and alone, and yet he could still defend himself from the plight of the underworld. This old man was a hero. His wealth and power were only a part of what made him so charismatic and commanding. He had real courage, too, and he had joviality in the face of danger and death this old man was what all young men should aspire to become. The officers laughed as the old man told a story from his past, one involving foreign lands and women in danger. One of the officers fell quiet as he watched a gurney roll past him and into the back of an ambulance, a body bag buckled tightly to its frame. The 29-year-old was dead, Mr. Dagger would have to find another pawn for his schemes, and the old man who owned the Rosewood house would have to replace a window. But that was the extent of the 29-year-old's legacy. No one would mourn for him. No one would think of him. No one would give a toast in his name. He would join the millions of nameless, faceless people who die without kin or community. And the body politic would be secretly grateful that there would be one less of his kind filling the streets, soiling their pretty city with his demented being. His death was good. It was correct. And for his death to be delivered by the hands of wealth was beyond good. It was poetic. It was justice. was the conclusion to work for hire Um, this story was fun to make it's actually novella length it's around 16,000 words a novella is about 17,000 words so just about novella length I had fun writing a a longer story and I hope you enjoyed it this podcast was written, edited, produced, and read by myself with the music being by Kevin MacLeod thank you all for listening (laughs)